0: Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today I have author Stephanie Lobdell, and we have a book we're going to be going over that she just wrote called Signs of Life, Resurrecting Hope Out of Ordinary Losses. She is a writer and a pastor and has served for 10 years as co-pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. Now she's a campus pastor at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. Thank you, Stephanie, for being my guest today. Thanks for having me the book is interestingly laid out in nine different deaths, which I'd like to read for our listeners to understand um, where you're coming from. You have death of zeal, death of future, death of plans, death of expectations, death of hope, death of revival, death of beauty, death of invincibility, and death of image, which are all these lessons you've learned along the way. And that's a really unique way to to write a book about, <laughs> about the process yeah. of I guess growing yeah. up and maturing. And so yeah. um Yeah, maybe you can explain a little bit how you decided to piece the book together that way.
1: Part of um, why I just chose to lay that out is what the the primary idea of my book is this concept of resurrection is um, the the ordinary losses, like not like the big dramatic stuff, Mm -hmm. like the ordinary stuff that happens to all of us. The question about resurrection was born out of um, just a conflict that we were having at our local church at the time. And somebody had asked me um, in the midst of this conflict, is the resurrection enough to bring us through to the other side of this conflict and kind of Mm. speaking. to the power of the resurrection in the midst of um, kind of relational brokenness, particularly in the context of the church. And it planted this seed um, in my heart of, um, of resurrection. Does the resurrection actually have something to say? Um, to the ordinary lives beyond just Jesus was raised from the dead and thus my slate is wiped clean and I will be in heaven with God forever. Like, mm-hmm. is there something actually happening now? Does the resurrection breaking into this creation now actually um, have any effect on how I live my life in this space and in this time? And so I began to kind of explore my own life um, where resurrection um, had taken place or was taking place, um, bearing fruit. And in order for something to be resurrected, Uh, logically, something first has to die. And so I began to explore these deaths in my own life, these ordinary, ordinary losses. My book is called Signs of Life, uh, Resurrecting Hope out of the Ordinary Losses. And so we're not talking about like, you know, I didn't have a bunch of miscarriages. I didn't have cancer. I wasn't abused. I mean, it's not stuff like that. It's things that are far more ordinary and less glamorous. And yet, hurt and reorient our lives nonetheless. So, you know, the death of zeal was when I, you know, I was just on fire, all those passionate, you know, um, all these, you know, fiery metaphors of um, a young person called into vocational ministry. And I went off to college and kind of went through my first deconstructive period and kind of went, felt this um, kind of burnout and asked, like, what are we actually doing here? And so this this death of the zeal that was really more about me and my identity mm. and my ego and all of that, that needing to die in order that something more faithful, um, you know, giving myself away for the kingdom of God might be born within me and resurrected within me. Mm. So that's just one example. But I go through several things throughout my life. You know, the the death of zeal, um, the death of future kind of explores um, during that, you know, a couple years after that death of zeal. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was moving in this more faithful direction. Um, life got kind of difficult. Um, and I came to be diagnosed with um, depression, anxiety, um, which should not have been a surprise as a part of my my family like medical history, um, but it was very surprising to me. And, um, I felt like it was kind of the death bell for, um, for my vocation as a full-time, you know, at the time I wanted to be, I thought I was going into missions. And so it was this, this future that I imagined that really I felt was completely derailed by this mental health diagnosis and um, having to to release what I thought would be in order that God could resurrect something within me that wasn't rooted in my own competency and my own perfection and my own, that, um, that invincibility, that facade sometimes that leaders do um, yeah. portray. But rather I come and offer myself to God with all of my brokenness, not hiding anything, but recognizing I do bear the marks of sin and death, even down to the cellular level in my brain. Right? Mm. Um, and yet God still invites me into this vocation. And so that was the death of the future that I imagined, but in order that God might resurrect something more faithful. And so I go through several things like that. Death of invinci- invincibility is like yeah. um, being physically sick and like I get so mad every time I get sick, like, <laughs> oh, my body has betrayed me once again. Um, but re- recognizing like our mortality is actually a gift because it calls us to remember we are not eternal. God is eternal. We rely on him. And um, that was kind of a funny chapter. And the Death of Beauty is about um, about body image. Mm-hmm. And then each of these stories, it kind of weaves together um, bits of pieces of my life, of wounds, of deaths, of, of sorrow, of grief, of loss, um, but weaves together with a story, um, a narrative of scripture, not like a, a Bible story, like let's unpack all the details in the original Greek, Mm -hmm. but rather kind of the narrative, like the narrative of Leah, the rejected, unlovely one. Mm -hmm. um, What is it like to be her? The story of um, Hagar in the wilderness or of David in the wilderness, like those kind of stories of futures that had been shattered and then reimagined. So yeah. that's kind of the layout of the book. And I wanted to really explore this idea of ordinary loss and God speaking and meeting with each one of us um, with his resurrection power in the midst of that.
0: Yeah. And I think it's really, it's really interesting to go back over your life, for, for a reader anyway, to, to notice that here you are going back over your life. And saying, "Here's some tough spots, some ugly spots, and I'm going to be honest about them." And these fell short, but also I I needed to see them to to have these signs of life. You know, I, if I didn't see them, I would still be um, struggling with the blindness of that. You know, not having yeah. the resurrection part. On page sixty five and sixty seven, you talk a lot mm-hmm. about anger which is obviously yeah. very common for us, especially if things aren't going our way or we don't, you know, our expectations aren't met. And you say this, this great line, this great quote, anger is easier to manage than grief or humiliation. Mm. Yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what that's meant in your life. If it was your go-to emotion, it was a stand-in or, or something that was yeah easier to deal with than maybe the, the more core feelings.
1: Yeah, for sure. For me, and that might not be universal experience, but for me, anger is usually the the first mo- the first emotion um, when I feel like I've been wronged, or I feel like I've I've been embarrassed, or I feel you know any multitude of experiences mm-hmm. can manifest for me um, a first in anger. Um, but most of the time, if I um, if I sit with that anger for a minute, I realize I'm not just angry. I'm actually um, I feel ashamed mm. or I feel I feel embarrassed or I feel forgotten or I feel belittled or I feel silenced um, or something like that. That's a little bit more um, tender, yeah. um, a much more, a far more tender emotion. But man, anger is a whole lot funner and it's a whole lot more <laughs> invigorating and energizing. Right. You can get people on your team when you're mad like that. But when I'm willing to like sit in that and say, OK, anger, thank you for acknowledge, Thank you for helping me see mm. something is wrong. Anger. Um but let's 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 peel back the anger for a second and see what's actually sitting below that. And that's helped me be far more honest with myself about what I was experiencing yeah. um, in most of these kind of encounters.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, too, because anger is, is a great red flag, but it doesn't tell you enough You know that you can um, do too much about it. It's just kind of. Uh, and I know it shuts off part of the the brain too. It like shuts off the <laughs> underneath yeah. that. Like what you're saying is like maybe I, I feel hurt or left out. I know the the part yeah. where you you could not stand if people called you pastor's wife because you were co pastor. Yes. It's like wait a yes. no 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 I'm not the pastor's wife. I'm also a pastor here, and yes. it just drove you nuts and understandably. But it was like but that's not. That's not all of it. You know, some of it is that, you know, you're not being seen. Some of it is that people are uh, taking you for granted or not understanding that you're qualified. Uh, And and it's of course, it's bothering you, but there's no way that your voice can be heard, perhaps. And, yeah. and it's interesting, though, because if we dig past the anger, if we have, uh, sometimes anger protects us, right? So that we don't have yes. to go
1: deeper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd much rather be angry than um, humiliated, or I'd much rather be angry than feel completely invisible. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and in those moments when I was being called the pastor's wife, like literally, I was a pastor's wife. I was the spouse of a pastor. <laughs> right. But to be defined by that for me right. was the ultimate offense. Mm. And part of that pr- was probably to do with my ego. Um, and I was sensitive to the fact that, he here I am going to seminary. My husband even hasn't been to seminary yet. I've, you know, I'm almost done with seminary. and I'm still being treated as this, as like the sidekick. Mm-hmm. And for me, I needed to be acknowledged for the work that I was doing. And the I, I was giving my life to this congregation. Mm-hmm. And it felt like it wasn't being received or acknowledged in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that was to do with my own ego and needing that affirmation, mm-hmm. but also a very real and valid need mm-hmm. to be recognized uh, for what I was doing as, um, and being seen and valued and honored as, as pastor in that role. And that is a meaningful and important uh, distinction, but yeah, I'd far rather be angry than to have to sit with the reality that hey, guess what, you're invisible, or you're seen as less important, or un, you know, unheard.
0: Right. Yeah, and it points to maybe past pain or past wounds that haven't yeah. been resolved, still painful for you. And I think that's such a common thing that we think maybe that our anger is about what's happening right now instead of uh, lots of other um, triggers that have that point to other times and places yes yes this is the thing i was really surprised about because i don't um i was a pastor's kid as well but just in the early part of my childhood but um i didn't realize this for my own father you're really young when you take this pastorship like what are you like early
1: 20s or something yeah. So we, we went, we were overseas. We went overseas for a year right after college uh-huh. and we took this first church. Um, how old is my husband? He was, he had just turned 25. Mm. I was 24. Yeah. So we were very, very young. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, you know, kudos to that church for taking a risk on <laughs> us. Right. And we had a lot to learn together yeah. and that whole journey. Yeah. Um, but yes, we were very, very young and we went to seminary. We went through grad school as we were at that church. Right. So, um, it was, we went in and out of the city and then pastored this rural church during the mids in the midst yeah. of our kind of graduate education. Now I'm a lot older than that. Now I'm d- double that age. So
0: <laughs> like yeah, um, no. when I think of when I think about that, you know, at twenty four I'm I'm thinking, Yeah, I'm an adult, yeah, I'm married, yeah. But yeah, now looking right. back, I think, dear God, no. <laughs> right? I know. <laughs> like, don't don't you dare pastor a church like for your own Health and well being, like <laughs> do not do that, or or mentor in, a, like be mentored for like four years, or you know I don't know a thing about it because I'm not going into that field. But as an older person with with kids almost that age, I, yes. I'm like, oh sweet lord, please no. <laughs>
1: I know, I get that. So I would not say, I don't think the solution is to say, hey, you just need to sit on the bench right. until you put in enough time. Mm-hmm. Like, And uh, I don't necessarily think that's a solution. And there's times where we, our original plan was we thought we maybe be staff pastors for a while, yeah. um, but that kind of opportunity didn't come and this opportunity did. And I tell you what, there is no better way to learn how the church works and what it means to be a leader than to actually be in charge, right? <laughs> um, and yes, there were times where it was intense and there were times where we misstepped, um, but we really did have a very helpful Um, district level leader. So like kind of like an overseer who oversaw churches um, in our area who was constantly available for, um, for help and for advice Mm. and for support and encouragement. And so we didn't feel like sometimes we felt alone simply because we were very, um, uh, isolated. we were in a very rural community, mm-hmm. but we didn't feel isolated from our denomination. Like we mm-hmm. felt supported and mm-hmm. we felt loved and cared for by our overseer. Yeah. And that was really, really helpful. And keep in mind also, we were in grad school at the time. Yeah. So I was getting a lot of, you know, help and feedback and wisdom from my uh, professors. So when we mm-hmm. had like a nasty church conflict, mm-hmm. I actually got the phone call and went and directly talked to my professor yeah, who was yeah. able to receive me and just normalize that and um, speak to me with kindness and affirmation. Um, Um, It still didn't take away the fact that I felt like our world was crumbling, Um, but it felt like I'm not quite so alone. Um, You know, had I been completely cut off from those sources of support, man, that would have been a, that would have been a hazard to everyone's health. But um, (laughs) yeah, I look at back and I I am grateful that the church took a risk on us, even though there were days when it was extremely hard Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think all things were done as they should have been done. Um, I am grateful for the opportunity to learn and grow in that, Mm -hmm. in that space.
0: Yeah. And that's really a, a big difference between a church with a support system built in, we uh, could yeah. say denominationally, and then there's independent churches. And I'm, I've am i been to plenty growing up. I, I'm very familiar with them, but um, they can have some positives. But I think they can also be incredibly damaging for people oh, yeah. in ministry who don't have any support and it can turn into uh, the church board beating up the pastor or or a very charismatic pastor kind of. Through charisma, leading a church around for, you know, almost go to a cult (laughs) type of thing. No, it's true. And and so without that structure of support and mentoring and the help, like you're saying happened with you, uh, relationally, people can kind of do horrible things to each other. So it's great that there was, in a sense, you're learning on the job, but at least you have um, people who've gone ahead Mm -hmm. of you. And that's a big deal. Uh, I want to have you talk a little bit about the lessons you learned from Mama Dog, because that was really a sweet, (laughs) I really enjoyed uh, how you talked about that. And I thought maybe you could give listeners a taste of some of what that was.
1: Yeah. So we were in the midst of this very first pastorate and um, we were kind of navigating some some tensions there has been some um discord between some families and um and we became a part of that and trying to kind of find a way forward with this church and it just felt like it felt like a place where we were not able to breathe. There was not hope. Um, we were feeling very discouraged. Um, just what are we doing? Like what, where's the fruit of this ministry, right? It felt like a very frozen, frozen winter. Um, and in the midst of that, um, this dog, um, we're in this tiny little town and stray dogs would meander through all the time. But normally they would just be there for a few days. Either they'd go off to some farm or they get hit by a car or by a highway and they'd be gone. But this one dog, it was very clear. She'd had like umpteen litters of puppies and the local share station started feeding her and um, she kind of started coming around our house because we had a couple of our own strays that would hang out and um, she was so skittish like you couldn't even touch her like if you touched her she would leap and jump a thousand miles away Um, but winter came and it was extremely extremely cold and so she started sleeping on our porch because it was kind of closed in and we would leave out food for her but the second we came out man she would just leap away so my husband built this little doghouse for her And she would go in and sleep in there. But if we got close, man, she'd hightail it again. It was like a gazelle. She could leap over like fences. Um, It was was just crazy. But um, slowly over time, like she would like I would lay down food and she would like lick my hand and then dart away, you know, and like little by little, I would see her not quite so afraid. So in the midst of this church conflict, we have this dog that's lingering around who is clearly very broken um, and has been abused in how many ways, you know, Um, in the midst of that, we are restarting the youth group of the church, you know, the teenagers of the youth group. And for whatever reason, uh, it thrived. So all of these like rural kids, some of them were like Sunday school all stars. Some of them had never been to church in their life, started just pouring into our basement Mm. every Wednesday night. Um, just to be in a space where they were loved and they were welcomed. And we talked about the Bible in very, very basic ways and just, had very specific understanding, but this is what it means to be a community, this is how we're gonna treat each other, you know, we don't tease, we don't, we're not sarcastic. Like we made it this very specific culture. And um, it began to thrive, mm. this youth group, in the midst of what felt like this frozen winter all around us in this church where it felt like every meeting I walked into, I was walking on eggshells and didn't know who am I gonna offend next. I would go into the basement of our house with all these couches, and we built this little stage <laughs> and made this little like space for them. Yeah. Um, there was just this life and this energy. And I felt, I felt something stirring there. And so in the midst of this, every Wednesday, these students would pour into our basement and mama dog, she'd see them coming and she would just dart like gazelle right over the fence, just boom off, off into the distance. And she would watch, she would watch from like three yards over. And slowly, slowly, she, um, started staying in the yard when the teens came and they began to be able to pet her, they'd give her a treat or whatever. And I will never forget the night I was sitting in the basement. Um, my husband was up preaching or teaching the students. I was like on Sermon on the Mount or something. And the students are all sitting in chairs and couches and whatnot. And I look over and there's three students like sitting on the couch and sprawled out across all three laps is mama dog, belly up, paws in the air, and they are petting her belly. And so we were telling the students like, hey guys, this brokenness that you're experiencing, like a lot of you come from broken homes, a lot of you come from families that are struggling with addiction, a lot of you have lost parents, what you're experiencing is not God's intention for creation. Like this is sin and death at work. But even now, right now, because of what God has done in Jesus through the cross, like new creation is breaking in and we get to participate in that, you know, through reconciliation and through acts of mercy and through compassion and through, you know, restoration. And we would, I would literally, we would point to mama dog and say, do you remember how broken she was? Do you remember how alone and how sad and how scared she was? And now look at her through the love of God's people, you, she's experiencing healing and wholeness. And I know it's just a dog, but guys, she's God's creation too. And look at the healing that she's experiencing through this community of people that have loved her and have welcomed her. And it was just this beautiful metaphor in the midst of what felt like this hopeless space without oxygen of this sign of life, this tiny little sign of life, this blossoming youth group this stray dog that is somehow coming to like this is a kind of like salvation experience, right? Um, Amidst God's people. Um, and it was just a beautiful story of God's um gift of redemption in the midst of what was a really, really dark time. Um, and I kind of wove that together with the story of Abraham and Sarah, you know, how they're walking that journey of waiting for Isaac and waiting for waiting for any sign of life in the midst of what felt like this hopeless, hopeless time. But the thing about Mama Dog is that she was still still wild. She was a feral, feral dog. She'd kill our neighbor's chickens all the time. It was terrible. It was a point, of, it was a point of tension. There were feathers, there were feathers anyway, but she would follow me when I would run. And one day, and this was the terrible turn of this story was that mama dog when well, she was following me one day, got hit by a car and the guy didn't even care. He just drove away, left me. I was with my dog on a leash and then mama dog. And she's like, not even dead yet. And I'm like sobbing. I'm a mile from town in the middle of nowhere, right? And this guy picks me up, which was totally not safe. And he puts mama dog in the trunk and Um, takes her back, takes me home and says, I'll bury her. You know, it's okay. And you know, I'm sobbing and I'm like, I'll see you in the new creation, mama dog. Like I'm like weeping. He's like, she is crazy. She is crazy down. Um, and it felt in that moment, like it felt like it was all for naught, right. It felt like this beautiful sign of life in mama dog, this gift that we had been given. had been just stripped away and that a hope was just suffocated once again. But I was reminded of that story, you know, of Abraham and Sarah. And it says they saw the promise in a distance. They did not get to experience it, but they saw the promise, the fulfillment in a distance. As they died, you know, I can imagine Sarah, you know, she died. They they probably not long after the um, experience at Mount Moriah. So she saw Isaac as a teenager and probably passed away. Abraham maybe got to see. Jacob and Esau born, we don't know, but the reality is they saw glimmers of the promise in the future and went to the grave in this full trust that God would do what God said he would do. And so in that moment, even though it felt like hope was truly, truly lost and it felt like hope was so dim. we felt called to continue to hope, to continue to lean forward to the promise of God's resurrection in the midst of these teenagers, in the midst of us, not just the church, but in the midst of us who had been so wounded and were so weary from this pastoral journey and it's not necessarily a story that I think has an ending. Um, this is a story that I'm continuing to live out, right? Is pursuing pursuing this radical hope in the face of of loss all along the way, but seeking out those signs of life, those those mama dogs and those youth group moments that indicate God is indeed at work, resurrecting and restoring um, and introducing new creation into this broken place. Um, so it's a story that I continue continue to live. Yeah. Well, it I was so touched because.
0: Um, Interaction and, and our love toward animals, but of course towards people, too, does change things. It does turn things around. And you got to see, you know, she was like a, she, she was an illustration of that right in your life. In a really tangible way that also your youth group kids could see that is that they saw a turnaround of a wild dog becoming a dog that was okay being loved, yeah. And there's a part of us that's wild, like mom, mama dog too, and that that gets hurt and then is like, yeah. you no, know, get away from me, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> right, over
1: the fence, away from me, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> Please do not do not touch me. And then you exactly. you know you're hoping that that um maybe you know maybe once again you can you can eat near other people or or whatever it is that um, that the story of mama dog is kind of um it, it's it's just a nice tangible way to understand what love and grace can do and i thought that was just very tender and um mm-hmm. It's just one of those. It's just one of those stories that I, I'm sure will stick with me. And a lot of people who read the books so have to read it. Mm-hmm. People listening you have to read it for yourselves. So you get the full effect. <laughs> Although you did yeah. tell the story pretty well, but it's, it is so it's, sad, though. <laughs> it's a fair warning. Fair warning. Yeah, it does it does uh, tug at your heartstrings big time. But I, but I also think even even though I think, I guess the way I saw it was that Mama Dog stood basically no chance of having a normal or nice life, and you gave her. Uh, a chance at all this love she would have never had yeah. and even though yeah. it didn't end um you know it ended tragically for her but but the kind of gifts that you were able to give her and, and put in her life and and all those mm-hmm. connections and all those belly rubs um yeah. it's like i I don't know, it just it to me it just tipped the scales. Like she got a chance to not yeah. be wild. She got a chance to be touched yeah. and cared for and for some reason, even though you never want to, you know, you never want a turn of events like that. But I also was like, but she got a chance to be somebody's dog. You know, she got a chance to be that lovable mama dog. And she, you were yes. talking about how yes. she would greet people. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. how
1: did that go she would stand outside the door of the church on a Sunday morning and just greet people like these farmers are like why is this dog here I'm like she attends you need, you know what I mean like she's one of our members so she would just greet everyone and she would lay in the flower beds and wait for us to finish and she'd come back and she'd walk back across the street to our parsonage with us and she just was such a faithful presence man she was great she was like well I, I know my job is to you know yes. welcome people say hello to everyone tail wax tail wax
0: for all that's so adorable and it's and it just is I mean you it's it's a total opposite of what she was you know it's just, it's yeah. just kind of like a healing a story of healing sure. and I, it, it was really so, probably that was my I have to show my hand that was probably my favorite part of the book because it I don't know that just spoke to me in a, in a way that I know how animals are when they when they uh, stop trusting and they they get really hurt yeah. or they get abused or or something like that but i don't see myself as too distant from that either yeah <laughs> you know where you kind of like is this worth it to to connect again or whatever you know um and uh, just to see that that it turned around for her i was like yes <laughs> yes <laughs> so um yes. yeah so i was going to talk about um this is a little bit going backward but you can also feel free to speak about anything you want to in the book. Yeah. But on page one seventy five you had talked about um carefully cultivating an image and and yeah. the death of image, which is something we all you know, there's there's part of all of us that has to I guess you could say perform or you're hoping that other people accept you or whatever it is yeah. that you're acceptable, that you're 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 the right fit or, or something like that. Maybe you could yeah. talk a little bit about how you came to this death of image.
1: Yeah, so that that came, um, that kind of metaphor came to me after um, I had a significant relapse in my depression. Mm-hmm. So I had been on medication for probably 10 years at that point almost. Mm -hmm. And, um, it just kind of ceased working and I had to end up, ended up in a psychiatrist's office, like going to the primary care doctor and getting medicine. That just wasn't cutting it anymore. Counseling, um, was helping, but it wasn't, it wasn't fixing it. I was just in a really bad place. And so I ended up in a psychiatrist's office, which for me was like next level. Right. Um, this isn't just like, Oh, I feel sad sometimes. Like, this is, this is, this is the real deal. Yeah. Psychiatrist. Right? right. And we started talking about this alternative treatment, um, called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is basically, it's not, it's not electrical, it's not ECT, but it's basically magnetic stimulation of the brain, um, that kind of triggers where they believe depression resides in the brain and allows it to kind of reawaken and kind of get back in line. Right. They kind of call it like neuro, neurological muscle memory. Mm. Um, and it's been very, proven to be very effective. So, um, it was this big moment for me of saying, okay, so far I've been able to kind of talk about my depression. Like it's this interesting, like freckle uh. or this unusual personality trait. And I can use it as a, uh, <laughs> you know, when I talk to people, yeah. um, as a way of building rapport, which I don't know if I would consciously say I was doing that, but looking (laughs) back, I clearly was Uh when I was trying to like connect with someone and say, well, this is something, you know, I've struggled with as well. And in all sincerity, I wanted to connect with people, but also it can be used. And, you know, Brene Brown talks about this a little bit, like strategic vulnerability, um, (laughs) of using it as a fast track to intimacy and that being truly false and an abuse of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was still able to maintain this facade of like, but I still got it together. Like, it's not like I'm not taking showers people. Like I got depression, but like the high functioning, you can still get it together type. Right. And so then I, when I'm having to do this new treatment and it was, and I describe in the book, it's a bit harrowing Mm. when you first go through it, it's extremely, when you first do it, it can be very, very painful, Mm. uh, very disorienting. Um, just scary, mm. and so after I had gone through this first treatment and had been excruciating, like, and my hair is all smashed down because I had put this helmet thing on me, and my mascara is all running, my face is all has these weird lines on it from the Velcro. I mean, I was a mess. And I go to the bathroom to kind of clean myself up, and I'm going to drive home, and I see my reflection in the mirror, and I remember thinking, "Man, I can't pretend anymore. Mm, like, yeah. this is the real deal. I am not okay. Mm-hmm. I am not okay. And here I am." In the psychiatrist's office, with mascara streamed down my face, um, having just been through, like, sobbed my way through this treatment. Um, there's no pretending anymore that I have my act together, and not like my act as in I was doing something wrong. But there's no pretending anymore that I am not broken um, and in desperate need, in desperate need of, of, of redemption. You know, um, from this this illness, this. You know, I always talk a lot about the of sin and death that bears its fruit, not only in our behaviors, but also in our, our actual bodies, you know, bearing fruit of, of the brokenness in creation. Um, and so that's really where I came to understand, like, this image I had cultivated of myself of, of being highly competent and very efficient and effective and smart and go-getter and witty and, I mean, all these things that I thought about myself, which, you know, many of them were are probably true, but really I had was hanging the full weight of my identity mm-hmm. and my um uh, my sense of worth on what I could produce and who I could be and the image that I could portray to people even as I'm struggling and hustling behind the scenes to make that happen. And when that, all that was stripped away, when all of a sudden I have to commute every single day to Boise at the time to get this treatment and eating up all my time and I'm not able to com- do as much work and I can't do this and I can't do that and I have these headaches and all these things like that are beyond my control and I have to, I have to face the fact this image is not going to hold weight. Mm. It will not. And the only thing that can bear the weight of my identity and my worth and my value, um, is coming to accept and live into, put my full weight upon, um, God's God's love of me and the fact that I am God's beloved completely apart from what I can do Mm -hmm. uh, what I can produce um, what image I can portray to the world Um, and being stripped bare by this by this illness that I did not choose made me confront that in a way that was extremely uncomfortable but ultimately bore such good fruit in me and that I was able to live not into this image that I had created, but into the image in the name i had already been given. Like I didn't need to cultivate and create this image like I have already been given one. I have been made in the image of God and I've been declared to be God's beloved, um, completely apart from my performance. And so it was really a resurrection of what God had already done Mm -hmm. on my behalf Mm -hmm. and laying to rest the image that I had created for myself out of, out of fear and need and ego. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. yeah that's really powerful it's one thing to to know that abstract and it's another thing to hand it over when yeah when you hit the bottom yeah oh yeah yeah that's that's really powerful well is there anything else in the book that you think um you'd like to
1: mention or point people toward as as we close up well one of the things that i do talk a little bit about is about is about some church hurt and i know that is something that some people tiptoe around that and don't want to talk about it. And some people dive right in and they just want to rip the whole thing apart. And <laughs> I'm kind of in um, the of middle of the ground there in that I want to recognize some of the ways in which the church has been imperfect. Mm-hmm. Um, the ways that I personally um, experienced hurt from the church, um, but also recognizing um that there was two sides to a pancake of that story for me, mm-hmm. um, that I was a part, you know, churches are made up of people and I was a part of those people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I, I contributed to some of the some of the dysfunction there. Um, but instead of walking away from the church um, and saying, you know, I'm done with this, I'm done with this shenanigans, the Lord allowed me and invited me to persist, mm-hmm. to continue serving the church and experience some really redemptive healing that really truly did require some forgiveness on my part as well as repentance of my own part that I played in some of that dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And so, if, you know, if any of your listeners have experienced church hurt and kind of like, what is the way forward here?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do I still have a home? Can I still belong to these people? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? There might be some words of hope there. There might be some difficult words because it is words of calling us to forgive mm-hmm. and also calling us to sometimes even repent of the part that we've played in some of those conflicts. And so that's been something that I think has been meaningful for people, particularly those who have served the church vocationally mm. and have seen some of the ugly underbelly of what that can look like
0: yeah.
1: occasionally. So that is a part that, that I do wrestle with pretty vulnerably mm-hmm. in several of the chapters
0: yeah that's that's one of the things that i thought you were very brave about because it's because it, you can paint a story in many different ways but if <laughs> if you're saying yeah i played a part in in how this you know turned sideways too then yeah that that really is more um well, of course, it's honest, but it's like it actually can actually heal you because you won't take that to the next job or something, right.
1: Yeah, well, I did take it to the next job, right. and i <laughs> I truly did, like I was wounded and that church bound up my wounds in some ways I did not know I needed, mm. but also didn't let me be dishonest, like called me out mm. in some very specific individuals called me out on, on patterns that I had developed that were really coping mechanisms of you're going to be hyper, you know, this hyper achiever to prove that you're worth something, mm. but you don't have to do that anymore. Mm. Um, and man, that was hard to receive and it was embarrassing, mm. but it ultimately brought about healing in places that I did not know were still bleeding. Mm. Right. Um, and so I was grateful for that church, for even the the hard moments of them calling me to account. Um, the Lord gifted me with that congregation that bound me up, and and now here I'm in this kind of unique role as a college pastor at a university. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no no doubt in my mind that that all of the things that have happened, God did not create those, He did not cause those, He did not orchestrate those, but He has taken what what was broken. And he has bounded up and is making something beautiful out of that. And I am grateful for God's restoration and resurrection work in my life, vocationally and personally. Mm. Tell us a little bit about
0: what you do as a campus pastor. I'm sure it's quite a, a lot different yeah. than than regular co-pastoring
1: stuff yeah. that you've done. So I oversee um, I oversee all campus ministries on our campus. So that includes chapel. We have um, required spiritual formation. So that means includes chapel and small groups and service learning groups. Um, as well as um, bringing in special speakers and preaching myself, um, orchestrating all of the chapels we have throughout the semester, orchestrating um, international and domestic um, service learning trips. So it is an enormous job um, for about 1,400 traditional undergrad students. Um, it has been a wild ride, <laughs> but because I've been, only been in the job since July, but I've learned so, so very much Um and I'm coming to appreciate kind of the the unique experience it is to pastor a college campus. It's a transient community in the sense that they're only here for a few years. But man, it's, and that's hard, but man, getting to speak into their lives in a place where they are the most disrupted and they are mm. the asking the biggest questions and where they're trying to decide like, who do I actually wanna be and where am I going? Mm. Man, to get to speak into their lives at this critical moment, what a privilege. Mm. It is a gift. It is a
0: gift. Yeah, that's and, and all of your you spend a lot of time really preparing for that during all your youth group things. and it seems like a a great um, I mean, it's not like it's it's not out of nowhere. God really has led you there,
1: yeah. no, i it wasn't something that I necessarily anticipated for myself, mm-hmm. but the Lord kind of opened up the doors and they just kept opening, and mm. we trusted and trusted and felt God's confirmation throughout the process. So. Here we are. Wonderful. Well, Stephanie, tell
0: everybody where they can find you and get a hold of your book. I'm sure in all the regular places, but where can they find you online?
1: Um, I have a website, um, stephanielobdell.com. It has some of my blog stuff, has links to all the stuff I've written. It also has... Um, you can download the intro and chapter one of my book for free there, um, as well as a free study guide. So mm-hmm. uh, it, the study guide was written in such a way that you could use the book for like a book group or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a friend who's really good with curriculum, write some questions that um, I think are pretty insightful. Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram. I'm at a little bit on Facebook as well. So you can find me all the places. <laughs> great. That's cool. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. Yes. Thank you, Lisa. It's been great.